The Halftone is brought to you by Haywire Press, presenting signed, deluxe, and limited edition books by Lee Friedlander from the photographer's own private stock. For more than 40 years, Lee Friedlander has been collecting his pictures into books, with trade editions often accompanied by limited and deluxe editions. Haywire Press offers an array of Friedlander titles spanning his entire career. From the limited edition of his landmark first book, Self-Portrait, featuring a tipped-in silver print, to signed copies of his latest book, Western Landscapes, just published by the Yale University Art Gallery. In the Haywire catalog, you'll find special editions like the American Monument, with a beautiful cloth and leather binding of the trade edition paired with a bound portfolio of ten signed and matted gelatin silver prints. There's also the photogravure edition of Cherry Blossom Time in Japan, published by Frankel Gallery in 1986 and printed by halftone guest Thomas Palmer. It features 25 gravure prints signed by Friedlander and printed by Palmer on an etching press in his Rhode Island studio. Also available are signed copies of Friedlander classics, including Factory Valleys, Like a One-Eyed Cat, and Stems. And new titles exploring Friedlander's vast archive, like Family in the Picture, as well as the books Street, Children, and Portraits from his new series, The Human Clay. These and dozens of others are available at haywirepress.com. You can also find them on Instagram at haywirepress. Right now, Haywire is offering a special discount for Halftone listeners. Enter the offer code HALFTONE at checkout to receive 10% off your next order. For signed, deluxe, and limited edition books from Lee Friedlander, visit haywirepress.com and enter the offer code HALFTONE. That's haywirepress.com. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Marth and welcome to The Halftone my podcast and chance to visit with photographers, printers, and curators to talk with them about what they do. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and a quick note to listeners. If you like the show and want to help support it, you can visit thehalftone.org and click the donate button. My guest today is Darius Himes. Over the course of his career, Himes has worked as an editor of the PhotoEye Booklist, director of Frankel Gallery in San Francisco, and is the co-founder of photography publishing imprint, Radius Books. With Mary Virginia Swanson, he is the co-author of Publish Your Photography Book, released in 2011 by Princeton Architectural Press. And in fall of 2014, Himes became the international head of photographs for Christie's. I met with Himes to discuss his lifelong interest in photography that has taken him from his childhood home in Iowa to places like New Mexico, Israel, California, and most recently to New York City. So here we go, my conversation with Darius Himes. In my head, just knowing I wanted to be a photographer or be involved with photography. And this was in a, I grew up in a small, very small rural town in Iowa, eastern Iowa, uh, by the name of New Liberty, Iowa, population 134. And I went K through 12 public school six miles away in another town. and there were, I think there were like 25 of us in my graduating wow. class. Wow. Yeah. And not long ago. <laughs> <laughs> not long ago, exactly. This was, yeah, this was I graduated high school in 1988. And then um, 
I always say I escaped Iowa and headed to oh, yeah. headed to Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is all pre-internet, and um, I wanted to study photography at an art school. And um, the research that I was able to do revealed that the schools in Arizona had a long history with photography and and great photography programs. So I chose ASU and got accepted and um, and headed out to a fine arts program. Now, when you were in Iowa heading to Arizona, interested in photography and studying it, who were some of the people that you were most interested in at that time? You know, honestly, it was it was such a sort of truly naive um, and and youthful interest in photography. I had one book on photography that my father had bought me, and it was Henry Hornstein's Black and White Photography book. There was no there was no class in high school about photography. Mm-hmm. The darkroom that I learned to print in was a closet in the science classroom. Yeah. And uh, where, you know, where the science teacher taught me how to develop film and and then just let me do whatever I could do in there. So I was familiar with names from that book, like Harry Callahan and and probably others, but I had not seen yeah. anything else yeah. by by anybody. So I really arrived in Tempe, Arizona um, as a very blank slate. And, um, and then I had the amazing fortune of having some great professors like Bill Jay, the British historian who'd yeah, been yeah. at Arizona State for many years, and also his colleague, William Jenkins, who we all know as the curator of the new topographics exhibition right. from mm-hmm. Rochester, yeah. but he's, he has been a professor at Arizona State for, gosh, maybe at least 35 years and has educated a couple generations of of photographers coming out of there. So how was the transition from Iowa to Arizona? Well, I thought I'd landed at a resort. I mean, <laughs> you know, we I grew up with snow drifts in front of the front door of our farmhouse yeah. to, you know, 85-degree weather over the Christmas break, and I thought it was amazing. What did your family do for work back in uh, Iowa? My dad was, uh, had a job with the at the international headquarters for John Deere. So very Midwest, Mm -hmm. but also a corporate guy. And in that, um, and in that scenario, most of my classmates were actual, you know, they were kids of farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, and in strangely enough, in this context, I was a quote city kid, (laughs) even though, you know, it's like a village in the town in the middle of nowhere. But, um, it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic upbringing. My mother, uh, is a chiropractor, mm-hmm. so I um, I grew up with a lot of uh, sort of open-minded ideals. Neither of my parents or anybody else in my family is really involved in the arts, so it wasn't like there were a lot of arts happening sure. in the house sure. or exposure, but they were also not obstructionist in any way and always supported my interest and my sort of fledgling talents around photography. So you've got a couple of great teachers in Arizona, and... Um you mentioned not having any particular photographers in mind, but I wonder if there were, you know, eye-opening moments or, or I guess, lightning bolts in, in Arizona when you were kind of getting your feet wet. Yeah, definitely. I can still remember Bill Jay at the front of the classroom with these large, you know, sort of freshman-level 
photo 101 kind of history lectures talking about how difficult it was to make photographs, just the technical process during the 19th century. So some of those earliest pictures of people like Carlton Watkins or um, Roger Fenton on the other side of the Atlantic out there with these, you know, sort of 16 by 20 inch sheets of glass and coating them, you know, under the darkroom tent on top of a mountain in Yosemite or what, wherever it was, all of those stories were, were amazing. And I was, I was always a bit of a, of a interested in, in history and going through, you know, this was, you know, freshman year, you're like memorizing dates and names and mediums and all of that. So the names, so some names like, you know, I mentioned Roger Fenton, but also like Gustave Le Gray and Charles Aubrey and just some of these earliest people, Charles Marville and all of that. Those pictures really stuck in my mind as much as then people like Manuel Alvarez Bravo or Robert Frank or Deanne Arbus. I mean, it was really, um, I, I feel lucky to have gotten this, the, f the full sweep of the history of the medium sort of presented to us as, yeah. as the whole thing is exciting, you know, and that, um, that understanding also, I remember Bill Jay, this was, you know, in the late eighties saying that up until that point in time, there had been over 800 distinct photographic processes invented, which even when you say that out loud now, mm -hmm. you're like, well, wait a minute, really? Yeah. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, when you think about all of the different, all of the different types of chemistry and papers and fixers and, you know, that whole sense and the fact that we have these, you know, positive processes, negative processes, any sort of like this infinite variety of ways that you can make a photographic image, it, that, that was, that was also extremely exciting to me. It, and that was, that was with wearing the hat of somebody who wanted to make images. And so thinking about your, your artistic toolbox mm -hmm. as being filled with all of these different processes was fun. Right on. So when it came to making pictures, were, were you there to study the history of photography or to make No, I was there, yeah, BFA program. Yeah, so okay, I, was, right I was studio photographer, you know, making photographs, studio art major, and, uh, and yeah. Did you do a thesis in photography? We, yeah, I mean, my, yeah, my BFA was in photography. Arizona State was one of the few places that had a, a very strong BFA in photography program. Um, and then the studio arts, the whole, the whole college of art there was very robust. So there was an amazing printmaking program, ceramic studio, you know, lots of artists doing great things. Um, I was also totally drawn to, uh, I, I took a, a year long, two semesters worth of, um, printing and bookbinding. So yeah. like letterpress printing. Yeah, and I got great. completely sucked into that sort of entry level history of the craft of making books. And, you know, looking back on it now, it's kind of like bookmaking and photographer, oh, yeah. photography where these two loves yeah. that have been there from the very beginning. Um, so yeah, and it was also, we had a very, we had a very strong um, program around what, what we called alternative photographic processes, mm -hmm. you know, which was everything that wasn't gelatin silver sure, sure. Um, and film based. And so, you know, we did salt prints, we did, you know, Van Dyke Browns and cyanotypes and all, you know, one of my professors, James Highcheck, was 
researching the Woodbury type print, which was oh, one Jesus of these long, Christ. long lost, you know, <laughs> long lost uh, processes that it's a cast there's only of a carbon there's, print, right? Well, there's really only one person on the planet who um, knows anything about that, and he lives out in Los Angeles. So anyway, it's just it was all of that kind of like exciting. I've heard uh, Chip Benson talk about the Woodbury type. It just sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. It's so, so difficult. So anyway, so yeah, all yeah. of that was kind of like in the air. Right and, and uh, That's great. Yeah, watch, that... you know, we were watching, like as undergrads, we were watching Mark Klett, you know, print dye transfer, you know, photographs yeah. and really explore all of these different processes. What were you shooting? I was, you know, I started off as any kind of kid did. I was just shooting 35 millimeter handheld, you know, black and white stuff. Um, and at one point during a crit, one of my professors, I had some photographs on the, up on the wall and they were all like still life type arrangements. And he's like, you know, have you ever thought about using a large format camera? And of course I didn't even really know what a large format camera was. And I just remember him saying, cause you know, that stuff isn't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the, it was like one of those Eureka moments of like, Oh yeah, the handheld is really lets you be mobile, but if things aren't moving, it's like why not use a four by five? So then I started using a four five and did uh, I really got drawn to doing um, more architectural type work out out in the out in the out in sort of like the south side of Phoenix and all of that. So I was I was really sort of just experimenting and, yeah. and developing things. What what'd you do when you graduated from Arizona? So I then, uh, I then moved to Haifa, Israel. Oh, yeah. And I was there for four and a half years. And I was working at the Baha'i World Center, which has a, an archive, a permanent collection of historical photographs. So I had um, written and asked about that, that collection and um, had then been invited to come and essentially... Um, work as both a, we were doing preservation work, so not like photographic conservation, but doing preservation. And then it was a, it was a working collection. So there were communities from around the world that were, um, you know, you could, you could essentially do, re, it was a research archive mm -hmm. um, and also active sort of publications. So we were doing a lot of darkroom work. Um, and so I sort of, I, I was one of those uh, technicians that was there and we were, we were doing everything from, you know, printing historic images to out photographing different events and printing in, you know, printing sebachromes and I mean it was just like the whole range of photographic processes. Wow. So it was very much like this uh, four years of active photographic um, endeavor. Um, but then it also gave me I had like a full darkroom at my disposal and I was fascinated by by Israel and the land and the people and just spent time making my own work at the same time. And that was four years, you said? Yeah. So I was there from 94 until uh, 98. Dang. Now, did you go to grad school after that? Did yeah, so, so then... You had, it sound, that sounds like yeah, almost that was, more intense and, and it, it was like a, It was like a graduate yeah, program. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was photographing every day, which was great, and I loved that. Um, and also I loved, I loved being in the darkroom and printing and um, I loved color printing, I loved black and white printing, all of it. Um, and also working with historical objects, so that was, it was sort of hitting all of those marks and I, um, I loved it. I then um, found out about a small uh, liberal arts college called St. John's College, mm -hmm. which had a great books 
program and was very much a, I was an avid reader, sort of always have been. Um, and I became fascinated by this program and came back to, New, went to New Mexico to visit and was convinced that I wanted to do that. So this is the great books program, right? This is, yeah. yeah. So this was, yeah, this was started by Robert Hutchins and Mortimer Adler in the 40s. And it was a, um, St. John's College has a campus in Annapolis, which is where it was sort of first, this curriculum was first implemented. And then they opened a sister campus in Santa Fe in the 60s. So it's been out there for a long time. And a, a totally, a fact that I didn't, realize until after I'd graduated from St. John's is that Robert, the lectures that Robert Adams gave around beauty in photography were yeah. delivered at St. John's College Real. in Santa Fe. He himself was invited down and wrote those, those essays wow. for, uh, for delivery at St. John's, which I was... I never knew that. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, a, it's a nice little connection. But for me, the, doing that curriculum was, doing that program was... Um, was really about sort of balancing out a, a an undergraduate fine art education with a a much more rigorous kind of intellectually challenging um, graduate level education. It had yeah. obviously it had nothing to do specifically with the fine arts, but it was also, in my mind, it was very much about um, the role of the arts. To me, anyway, I was sort of looking at it through the lens of the role of arts in society what is a healthy society, all of these sort of larger um, questions that I think are great to ask and to continue to think about. So, so that was uh, from 98 till 2000. And during that time, I was working part-time for Ricks and Reed at Photo Eye Books, which is based in Santa Fe. And just as I was finishing up my graduate program, um, lots of things were happening sort of at PhotoEye and culturally. So in the late 90s, early 2000s is when Amazon mm -hmm. first came online. Mm -hmm. So we first started buying things online, rough now, you know, roughly almost 20 years ago, 18-ish years ago, which um, it still seems very recent, but at the same time, there's a whole generation that has, you know, is used to buying things online. Sure. It still feels new to me. And... Uh... You know, I'm a young guy, but yeah, it feels relatively recent. So, photo I Rick Rick was very smart to get on that bag, bandwagon early, and he developed his own sort of shopping cart experience at photo I. Photo I had been um, really North America's best mail order sort of destination for all thing, all types of photography books, and there was a mail order catalog that he would send out, you know, every two months with the newest books, um, and he very quickly got people online and started um, getting people to buy books that way. So the person who had been working on the mail order catalog left, I think that was in 2000, and Rick asked if I wanted to take that over, and I said yes, but I also said I'm really not interested in a mail order catalog, and we very quickly... I. I proposed turning it into more of a quarterly journal about photography books. So that then um, took up the next uh, several years. And so, so as the internet became more and more important as a shopping device, um, the magazine became more and more important as a, um, you know, sort of like an, an, a vehicle, an organ about 
the about what was happening in photography book publishing. Also at the same time, you have to remember this was also when all of the books about photography books started coming out. Mm -hmm. So you have really the first the first volume that came out was in I think it was 1999 and it was this book called Fotografia Publica which was published out of Spain and it was about photography books between the years 1919 and 1939 sort of that between the wars period and so many great classic books came out from that from that time frame you know Brassai you've got Dorothea Lang Walker Evans all of these things happening and then very quickly after that was Andrew Roth's book, yeah. The Book, book of 101. 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I think, the year 2000. And then on the heels of that came Martin Parr and Jerry, Jerry Badger's, Badger, yeah. you know, the photo book, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. So there was all of this interest in photography books happening. We were turning, we were starting to publish the, the quarterly journal about, mm -hmm. you know, the photo I book list about photography books. And there was just this real sort of surge and wave of interest around all of that. Right on. Now at PhotoWide, were you doing new books exclusively? Were there any you know, used books if, if you found something, you know, like that book about bread that Parr put yeah, in? We, so could you find that at PhotoWide as well? Yeah, we would um, service clients that came to us looking for specific things. We would try to find them. Um, and we had various sources, but then Rick also developed the, um, the photo I book auction site, which was an online auction site. And so there was a gentleman by the name of Eric Miles, who, um, is now based here in New York, but he was running those auctions and, um, was a rare book sort of specialist. And, um, so there was a lot of activity that way. So it was the quarterly book list was a survey of new things coming out. And then there was a lot of editorial wrapped into that. Like I was able to, I interviewed William Eggleston and I talked to Sam Abel and I would interview publishers and yeah. Mary Virginia Swanson and I started a column in the, in the journal that was um, about how to publish books because we were constantly being asked by photographers, mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, what, publisher should I approach with this project? How do I get a book published? You guys seem to know. So I approached um, Mary Virginia about co-authoring a column, which then ran. Um, that column ran for, I think it was a couple of years. And that column then became the basis um, for the book that she and I co-authored that was then published by Princeton Architectural Press, which was called Publish Your Photography Book. And that's now in its second edition and still in print. So that all of that was kind of happening at the same time. Now when you were, you know, doing auctions or, or sourcing books, did you ever go on any buys or, or discovery trips? When I was working in a used bookshop, one of my favorite things to do was to go on buys and, and come back with, you know, surreal, surprising stories of, of digging through stuff. And uh, I always loved hearing stories from a friend of mine who was a driver for the Strand. And he drives yeah. suburban oh, yeah, around, right. you know, right. greater Manhattan area with license plate New York Strand. Um, I never got to ride with him, but I always wanted to. I just, I wonder if you had any, any goodbye digging stories. Uh, not, not as many as I wish. I mean, there were definitely, we would, people would come to us with some really interesting, um, interesting things. Um, but I didn't have any. I didn't have any of those deep. That would be a great question for Eric. Yeah, you'll have to yeah. talk with him. The great thing about Santa Fe at that time um, was also just the depth of 
of history in photography, as well as photography publishers. So at that um, at that time, Arena Editions was publishing out of Santa Fe, um, and that was headed up by James Crump. Twin Palms Publishers, um, which is still based in Santa Fe and was um, uh, Jack Woody's uh, publishing house, it, um, was also there. And then you had a whole uh, host of great historians and and photographers there. So so. Beaumont Newhall's own private library was donated to the College of Santa Fe. Really? Um, you had, you know, William Clift is out there. Debbie Fleming Caffrey was living there. You had this whole history of, um, of interesting um, just people and historians. David Scheinbaum and Janet Russick, who are great. Both photographers and private dealers are based out there. So there was always a lot of really interesting history in the city. And that was pretty great. You mentioned for the magazine that you talked to Eggleston. Could you talk a bit about that meeting? He seems, you know, in the bits that I've gleaned from reading interviews and, and watching interviews, it seems like uh, maybe difficult. Yeah, this was, so it was a phone interview that we did. And, yeah. and um, I'm trying to remember which book was just coming out. I think it might have been the 5 by 7 book. I was about that to say that. Twin Palms that published. That book is amazing. It's totally amazing. And I, this might have been maybe, I don't remember, 2005, 2006, yeah, yeah. something like that. And so we got on the phone, and back then, I think this is even pre-iPhones, I think I had a some kind of little recording device. Yeah. And we got through to, you know, we got through to his house, and it was uh, his son who answered and said, give me a few minutes, let me bring Bill to the phone. Mm -hmm. And in those few minutes as I tested my little recording device, it completely died. Oh, and I was like, oh my God. So I'm sitting there with my, with my laptop and there's no other device available to me. So I was like, I'm just gonna have to, and I'm a pretty fast typer. So mm -hmm. I was like, I, we'll just, I'll just get down whatever I can get down. So eventually Bill comes to the phone and, and we start and he speaks so slowly that I was literally, I not only did I type the entire interview verbatim, yeah, but I was yeah. like waiting. Were you typing with two fingers? Yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, it's like I can type, you know, maybe 80 words a minute. He was speaking like 20 words a minute. <laughs> so that was, uh, th that was, you know, that was enlightening. Um, but then other people, it was, uh, it was, it was just great to, to in that role as editor of the of the magazine it yeah. was great to simply call up all of i i really you know took it as license to call any of my heroes or people that i admired and say look you've got a new book coming out can i talk to you would you be open to an interview or um and i would do that with publishers and editors as well as the artists themselves and that was great it's enlivening stuff i mean it's uh there's really nothing like it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's the best. Agreed. <laughs> so you said that you started the photo ideal while you were in school? Essentially, I was working part-time okay. for photo eye when I was still in grad school. So literally, I was like in the back room of a bookstore, you know, yeah. fulfilling book orders. I mean, it was not glamorous work at all. But when the, the 
full on, you know, working on catalogs in the magazine. That was once yeah. you finished up your. That studies. was after I'd finished grad school, and then I was yeah. Then I was working part, uh, working full time doing that. Gotcha. But I always had, I always had. Uh, look, during that period, I did as much as I could. So I was an adjunct professor at College of Santa Fe, lecturing on the history of photography. I had my own. Uh, matting business and Jeez. I would mat I would mat <laughs> I would mat exhibitions and yeah. do that on the weekend um, I was doing I was working with some architects doing architectural photography um, and then I was you know doing photo eye I was starting to you know get asked to lecture at other places I mean it was just kind of you know you're like in your early 30s and it's just you know you're it's just like say yes to everything and um, yeah and it was it was, uh, yeah, to like take a line out of Hamilton. It was, I was young, scrappy, and hungry. Right on. So where'd you go from photo eye, and how did things wind down there after, you know, a long handful of years? Yeah, so photo eye then transitioned into uh, being the editor of the book list, um, transitioned into a desire to really make books. And that was really how Radius Books got born. There were several... Um, several friends, um, colleagues in Santa Fe who were book designers or um, publishing people. And we all got together and, and formed Radius Books. And it was a chance to, we set it up as a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And it was a chance to really publish books on projects that we knew didn't have a lot of necessarily commercial appeal sure. and would be financially you know, sustainable um, on their own. But we just felt like they were, they were important projects. Um, or we knew that they could be beautiful objects. So that was that was really how and why Radius started. So we launched uh, in the fall of 2007 with four books. And um, that next year, we did another four in the spring. And then we've slowly, over the last decade, it has slowly been, you know, I think there's upwards of 20 books a year published. Um, I So that was 2007 when we launched. And I... Um, transitioned out of doing the the photo eye book list, mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I uh, Mary Virginia Swanson and I had pitched the book publisher photography book to Princeton Architectural Press, who had said they wanted to publish it. So then we had to write it, <laughs> and um, and that was a couple of that was definitely a a, a long summer and and year of working with her and writing that and finishing that up um, and and then designing that. And I was able to work with um, my colleagues at Radius, who are the designers, so David Chicky and Masumi Shibata, who is a fantastic designer. They worked on that, and we art directed the whole thing. So we were launching Radius Books, and I was working on that, on that book. Um, and over the course of um, those first few years, we were able to publish a lot of... Um, a lot of photography, you know, Radius wasn't just a photography book publisher. We were publishing books on the visual arts generally and um, did some great projects. We did a book with John McCracken, um, his last project before he passed away, the great sculptor, um, and books on artists like Otto Donald Rogers and Charles Arnaldi, um, Judy Toilette Stiwa, who was based in Santa Fe. Those are all non-photographic artists. But then also Lee Friedlander and... Um, Mark Klett. And then we were very keen to publish a lot of 
um, first books for younger artists. Mm -hmm. So like Michael Lundgren's first book, Colleen Plum's first book, Janelle Lynch, um, Renata Aller, lots of people where this was their first monograph and we really um, took pride in helping bring those things to fruition. Uh, so at some point, I think it was in 2009 or 2010, um, the folks at Frankel Gallery, who I had known for a while, reached yeah. out about uh, working on a Ralph Eugene Meat Yard project. Yeah, yeah. They asked if we would be interested in, in working on Kentucky this Kentucky guy, is that right? Yeah, so he yeah. was based in Lexington, Kentucky, had, had, um, had a very fruitful but short life and mm -hmm. kind of a legendary figure. And the Art Institute of Chicago was going to be doing an exhibition. And Liz Siegel was the curator there. And Frisch Brandt, who um, is the president of Frankel Gallery, she reached out to me to see if Radius would be interested in being the publisher. So it was Frankel Gallery represents the estate. Mm -hmm. The Art Institute of Chicago um, was, was showing, uh, was going to do the exhibition and then we published the book. And so through that collaboration, um, there was uh, just a real closeness that developed, um, and especially with Frankel Gallery. And, and after being with Radius for four and a half years, I then um, uh, took the chance, took the opportunity, um, accepted the invitation to come out to San Francisco and, and be the director of the gallery. So that happened in 2011, the spring of 2011. So that was also roughly the same um, time frame when Publish Your Photography Book was actually published mm -hmm. and launched. Um, so it was a very busy time. I left Santa Fe after a dozen years and moved to San Francisco. And Mary Virginia Swanson and I went on a, book, a bit of a book tour around yeah, yeah. the book. And um, yeah, so, it, so that was then my shift over to the gallery. Shoo -wee. Well, what was after Meat Yard? In San Francisco, what was your next project there? Well, so with with um, at Frankel Gallery, I mean, one of the things that was so uh, exciting about being there is that Jeffrey Frankel has had uh, an amazing publishing program since he opened the gallery. And when I was there, um, we celebrated the 35th anniversary of the gallery. So, you know, Jeffrey opened that gallery when he was, I think, 24 years old. Really? 1979. And has... Um, done so much for the artists that he's represented, including Lee Friedlander, Robert Adams, Deanne Arbus, all of the, so many of the artists from his first year of the gallery, he still works with, which is quite amazing. Um, but then we worked on projects. We did, uh, we did books on Richard Leroyd and Katie Grannon. Um, there were projects with Lee Friedlander and Robert Adams. So, I mean, there were a lot of, there were a lot of great, great book projects over the over those years i've got a handful of those books at home yeah most of them bob adams yeah 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 the the last exhibition that i worked on before i moved to new york was a um was a, a robert adams exhibition that was um it started off as or the core of it was the idea about putting together a master set of his monographs of all of his, of his books yeah, and yeah. there are i want to say there's something like 43 books or something at that time and we were able to pull together a set of 
um, an entire set of pristine copies all signed yeah, by yeah. him that was this like, you know, talk about a desirable no object for a book collector. <laughs> um, and then it was a bit of a mini survey in the gallery of yeah. like of prints and the yeah. history. And that was um, the yeah. last show I worked How on. exciting. And yeah. how, I imagine, frustrating trying to get all those books together. Yeah, it was great though. It was great to see yeah. that whole history. I think I've been trying to do the same thing, but a lot more slowly yeah. and not as many signatures. Yeah. <laughs> Eden is is the the one that still eats me up. I can't I find a decent or a cheap enough copy. I remember when that book was published, and I did not buy one at the time. Um, it's just like seventy five bucks, sixteen pictures. I know, I know. And then of course it's worn yeah. out, but still, I mean, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was Andrew Roth published yeah, that. Yeah, great, great little project. That's one of my favorites. It just yeah. it hits the nail on the head. It's yeah, it short does. and sweet. Yeah, I don't know. It's almost like a chat book, but um, yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. just knocks me out. There's one at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts that I've been right. able to look at there. Right. And aren't places like that amazing? Yeah. I mean, um, same same trip I got to see uh, Benson and Palmer's Gilman book. Oh, man. Which, luckily, I didn't have to pick it up. But yeah. that is a it's book. massive. Yeah. That is, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah, I know. I've seen one of those recently. It's really amazing. I just can't believe it. And I love the stories about how they did it. They're, yeah. They're nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Richard Benson is another one of those amazing figures um, in the history of photography. His, have you have you read through that book, the printed picture? I have. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I was able to. Uh, Aperture asked me to review it when it came out, and so just kind of like sitting and reading the whole thing, and it, you know, it's a grad. It's like a graduate course in how to print. And it's so fun. It's totally fun. It's Great so examples, fun. and the show at MoMA was. It was dropped dead amazing i, I mean it was yeah. just all of these amazing objects you know examples of yeah. different print types and cool stuff that um you know he collected and, and yeah. uh stuff from his family yeah and stuff that his brother collected and yeah. all sorts of or you know the amazing people he's known who have given him stuff totally and uh you know i didn't hear about that show until maybe five years after it came down yeah but he did this crazy video where yeah. he recorded like eight hours of talks about the show and I listened to it and watched the whole thing. And yeah, it's amazing. There are great stories about Nate Fying being a box towel that stuck in, slipped inside of a book that he bought in Newport yeah. or something like yeah. that. And, um, yeah, just, just crazy stuff. And yeah. other cool stories about books that he'd worked on and, and right. um, just all those tidbits that he, he can't keep to himself and he's yeah. got to share. Yeah. But yeah, what a book. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, and the the other thing about that guy that's just so, just the the things that that he's able to do, you know, working on machines, yeah. steam engines, cars, um, printing, making his own crazy, like doing his own crazy, uh, invented printing processes, yeah. working with acrylic paint and aluminum. I mean, yeah, yeah, all of that. I mean, you again, I, I this idea of. Um, the history of photography is so much tied up, is tied up with technology, but also with, I mean, it's really, to me, it is the, it is the, it is the child of the industrial revolution. You know, it is, it is literally a new set of eyes for humanity. I mean, there's no other way to think of it apart from that. And it, it came from so many tinkerers and inventors and you know 
the human intellect being curious about the world. That is where photography came from because it is, it's like, it's the history of optics. It's the history of chemistry. It's then you have, then you have those who are concerned about how it was being applied and used. And that's the whole, is it art or not debate, which is like, who cares? It's all of those things. It is art. It is science. It is propaganda. It is communication. It is, you know, it is pictures on our fridge of our family. All of that's photography. And all of that is amazing. And humanity never, again, humanity didn't, was not able to see the world um, in the ways that we take for granted now without optics and science, you know, without that. And then without the amazing creative spirit applying those, those discoveries to all aspects of life. Um, so, you know, I mean, like right now, if I, if I say, close your eyes and conjure up what a molecule looks like or what, you know, what an amoeba looks like, we can all do that. We can all close our eyes and picture that. That is because of optics and chemistry and photography. And that is, that is knowledge that far surpasses the most knowledgeable people of a thousand years ago. The things that we take for granted now, like what the surface of the moon looks like, what the insides of our bodies look like, what a, you know, what, you know, all of those Harold Edgerton photographs, which we think of as kind of cheesy and corny now, yeah. it's like they revealed yeah. secrets. Who knew there was a coronet? We, yeah, we, exactly. We, we, re, you know, all of those things, again, it's like it's far more advanced information than the most, you know, the most knowledgeable, at least in terms of facts. I don't want to downplay the fact that thinking through these bigger ideas about um, really sort of philosophical and metaphysical ideas about the human, the human condition, the human reality, about um, what is a well-structured society. Those are not solved by scientific fact. Those are solved by um, a curiosity and uh, an interest in human relationships. That has nothing to do with science. But when you tie this aspect of um, material advancement that we have seen in terms of, you know, what all of the technologies of the 20, 20th and 21st century, and then you, you tie that, if we can somehow find a way to tie those advances to what I would like to think of as like moral and spiritual advances in the sense of like, how do we use that to create a, a more just, healthy society? That I think is amazing. And strangely, I think photography has its role in there. Maybe that's strange. I don't think it's strange, but it, that's, that's really where my heart lies, is thinking about all of that. This is what happens when you get a couple of good coffees. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff just this starts is, rolling. This is what I'm here to hear. <laughs> but you were mentioning that the last project that Frankel mm -hmm. was collecting, Bob's library. Yeah. Um, how did you? It seems like that'd be a hard place to leave. Mm. Yeah. So oh yeah. I mean, how the, was uh, how the, was it that you you left Frankel? The gallery was and is amazing, and and uh, Jeffrey, I think, is a real one of the real visionaries um, in the medium. And it's a very warm and loving environment there. And um, so I got a phone call that was out of the blue and was about, uh, was a very vague phone call at first about an opportunity yeah. <laughs> to, uh, to work for an auction house based in London. 
That was it. That was the. Was it somebody with like a voice modulator? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A pixelated face appeared on my. No, it was it was just uh, there were there was an initial conversation. So it was um, uh, it it wasn't something I was seeking out, Mm -hmm. but it was also uh, something that was super intriguing. It seems like, you know, through talking with you this morning that um, you've been willing to shift gears and to get into the next really exciting, varied thing, whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have not had any kind of preconceived idea of where my life or career is going to go. I do know that, um, and this I, I feel like I identified in college, I, have, I love photography, and I've always been deeply interested in books and ideas. And so just pursuing that, I've, wa- I've walked through doors that have opened and they've, they um, have not been a very, not necessarily um, at first glance, a very sort of straightforward path. But when I look back or when I think about each of these chapters, they, they still incorporate the same loves. So like here I am, I'm, I'm, heading up a department at Christie's, which is amazing. Um, I've wanted to live in New York City for a long time, so that was sort of like a no-brainer. I mean, so this to be, is your first time living here? This yeah, is my yeah. first time living in the city, even though, you know, visiting sure, a sure. lot. But um, living in New York, heading a department at an international level, um, and I'm responsible for things from, you know, 1839 until tomorrow. Right. That's the purview, and it's... <laughs> It goes right back to being excited by Bill Jay as an undergrad. You know, it's kind of like, here I am. I get to work with the entire history of the medium. And uh, I've seen things that I would never have seen otherwise. Um, What are some examples of that? Well, like, for instance, just this last year in Paris, we sold a collection of daguerreotypes by uh, the Frenchman Giraud de Pongy, who is well-known if you're a daguerreotype nerd, um, but probably completely foreign name to most people. And he took one of the earliest tours around uh, the Near East um, and and made um, a, a whole trove of daguerreotypes. So being able to like look at these and you know hold these, the earliest photographs of the Parthenon and you know sites in Alexandria. And I mean, it's just amazing. Rome, all of that. Incredible. Things like that, yeah. um, all the way to then, you know, setting, um, we set a world record at auction for a Deanne Arbus print um, two springs ago, and I was able, in, in a, an amazing auction that was called Looking Forward to the Past, yeah. um, and the company specifically positioned a Deanne Arbus photograph in, not in a photographic auction, it was in mm-hmm. an evening sale of post-war and contemporary art. It was actually not just post-war and contemporary. It was sort of like spanned the 20th century. And um, there were several auction records set for artists that night. But being able to, uh, I, I wrote the essay for that piece and seeing it in that catalog and then having it achieve this amazing number. And to be able to be part of the team that placed a photograph one of the the most important photographs, I think, of the 20th century in the context with works like Brancusi's and Picasso's and all yeah, of that, it yeah. really felt like this is this is how uh, this is how photography is going to be seen as as really one of the most important art forms of the 20th century, which I think it is. I think it just hasn't 
people haven't thought of it that way, but it truly has been one of the most influential ways that we approach the world is through photography. For sure. Which picture was it? It was the um, child holding a toy hand grenade in Central Park. And um, still scares me. Yeah, it's an amazing piece. Yeah. It's an amazing piece. So anyway, things like that. Um, and then also yeah. when it comes to more contemporary work, I'm very keen to try to include works by my contemporaries. I mean, my heart lies in the idea of patronage. The arts have always required patrons. It's just that for centuries it was the church and the crown. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that now. We don't have that same kind of level of institutional um, patronage, at least not in as visible a way, um, which means that in a healthy way, I think, that patronage has been democratized. It's kind of like it falls on the shoulders of the many. To If you like the arts, then you need to support them. And we see people supporting the arts at at you know all of our great institutions like the Met and all around the country, these um, we have patrons. But it also means the young struggling artists in their studios who are just trying to pay rent wherever they might be. And so my heart is very much in trying to find ways to support my my generation and the next generation coming up. How do you how do we really support them? And a few thousand dollars in the pocket of a of a young artist means a lot, and it's not. It's not at the level of getting, you know, a wing of a museum named for you, but supporting supporting artists at that level is so important. So I've been able to include here and there a print by, you know, by this person or a print by that person and really work to get it in front of, of an international audience such as the one that Christie's has. Yeah. And so that's, that makes me happy when those things sell and that's sell pretty, well. Yeah. It's not just about you know, world auction records is really about, hey, you, collector, pay attention to this this young artist. You know, this is an important piece. Even if it's $2,000 piece, it's important. So what's a day-to-day -day like there at the office now? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's like, you know, 85,000 emails. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think adult life now <laughs> is basically emails. Seems like it. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it. Um, we are constantly in a, um, the two modes that the auction house operates in is consignment gathering mm -hmm. and then what we call selling the auctions, which means, you know, getting interest, building interest in the pieces coming up. Um, so at the moment, here we are, this is October 2nd, um, our fall auctions in New York are the evening of October 4th, Tuesday night and the day of October 5th. So we have our preview auctions. Um, we have a preview exhibition up mm -hmm. all weekend until the auction itself, and, and then um, we're just doing outreach. And then we have uh, upcoming auctions in November in Paris. Um, and the consignment gathering process for next year is in full swing. And um, so it's a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of relationship building and maintenance, which I love. I love speaking with people about photographs and either things that they may be interested in selling or things that they may be interested in acquiring. So w could you talk me through um, a typical auction night? It seems like it would be terribly exciting. I've never been up here for one, but yeah. even the, uh, the little Virginia auctions that I've been to have been often really fun. And, yeah. Uh, Definitely. Thrilling even, yeah. Yeah, uh, the auctions can be, you know, a bit of a roller coaster because 
essentially the the big difference between there's a difference in the psychology of of buying at an auction versus buying at a gallery let's say so if you walk into a gallery there's a show up and you take your time you look around and you ask somebody what what something might cost and let's say it's ten thousand dollars that's the price that's sort of like the ceiling ten thousand dollars and you might be able to ask for a discount and get a little discount off of that. At the auction, it's the exact opposite. You come in, you look around at, at the exhibition, and then you have to come back at a very particular time, and the object that you're interested in may have a low, let's say it has a low estimate of $10,000. That price can only go up. It's not going to go down. So it's going to start just below that, and then who know, there's no ceiling. So it's a little bit of, it's this different psychology. And, um, and it's available for about one minute in time. You know, it's like, okay, lot number three, here it is. Anybody want it? Anybody want it? No. It's over to here on you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You go through all of this. But in a minute, the whole thing is over and it's either sold or it hasn't. And who knows how high it's gone? You know, it's that kind of, so there is a thrill in that. Um, but nobody goes into auctions wanting to spend a lot. They right. you often go in looking to find a bargain, right? So yeah, it's what's, what's going to slip through the cracks. Yeah, what's yeah. going to slip through the cracks, and um, so you've got all of those sort of emotional and psychological uh, dramas going on at the auction. And of course, on our side, we're simply you know Christie's doesn't own any of this work. We're right, right. you know we're a platform. Mm -hmm. We're and um, our brand is about finding great things and then selling them. So we're just trying to make sure that we've let the right people know that this thing is available. And, you know, obviously there's salesmanship to it in the sense of being both a scholar but also um, conveying a sense of urgency that this is going to be available at this time and how can we help you. And, um, and you just don't know how successful you've been until the day of. And uh, yeah, so that's a bit of a wild ride. I imagine that the staging is a little bit nuts too, as far as presenting stuff as it comes up. Um, and yeah. there's quite a lot of excitement. Yeah, we hold, yeah, these preview exhibitions are four or five days long, that's it. So we put 200 things up on the wall for five days and then they come down. And other departments are doing that at the same time. You know, Christie's has, I think, something like 50 individual art specialist departments. Photographs is just one. You know, there's antiquities and there's Japanese art and, you know, so many, wine. I mean, there's so many different categories of collectible things. And um, so, yeah, just all year round, you know, you'll come into work one day and there's, there's like a full, you know, 18th century samurai outfit sitting, you know, out front. And you're like, wow, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Has nothing to do with, you know, the history of photography, but that's, it's kind of like seeing, you know, it's like seeing the, the Met on sale every sure, week. Just yeah. some, some yeah. different department is, is uh, being sold. So, so this auction coming up um, Tuesday, could you tell me again what it's called? Yeah. So the, um, it's just the photographs auction, um, yeah. but we do an evening sale. So this is called the evening sale. And um, the evening sale for us is it's um, evening sales are generally much shorter, um, less than 50 objects. Like our evening sale this time is 28 
different lots. Mm -hmm. And it's a chance to really, what we're doing with the evening sale is pulling out some of the best things and setting them um, apart from the others and saying, pay attention to these. These are truly exceptional. And they range from, on the low end, like $10,000 up to half a million. And it's really, again, it's that chance to say, sure, this thing that might be ten dollars or $20,000, it is still something extremely important that you should pay attention to. And then, and then there are a few um, truly exceptional high-end objects that are, that are for, you know, for uh, collectors of means. What are the a few of those uh, examples from this? Well, we have, um, I would say the piece that I'm most excited about is uh, we have, t well, we have two original Man Ray rayographs that um, were sort of recently rediscovered. They've been in a collection for quite a while, mm -hmm. um, but they haven't been seen um, for decades. And one of them was, they were both made in the early 20s. So Man Ray started making rayographs roughly 1922. And one of them is from 1922 and, another, and the other one is inscribed as being from 1923. The one from 1922 um, was included in a small avant-garde journal, American journal, that from 1920, March of 1923, Man Ray was asked to guest edit this journal. And in that journal, there's, there's lots of different writings by different people. And, but there are a total of eight illustrations. Four of them are photograms by Maholi Naj, which are amazing. And four of them are his own rayographs. And the one that we have is one of those four, which is amazing. Um, another one of those four came up for auction, I think it was about two years ago, and sold for right around a million dollars. So we have so we have one of those four, and that's sort of an amazing right opportunity. Um, and then the other one is is also a, a great rayograph. It's it's never been illustrated, and um, as far as we can tell, nobody knew that it existed. So it's kind of a discovery in that sense. It um, it uses several elements that he used in other rayographs. So it's not as it's not as exciting in that sense. But um, but still, it's an original rayograph, and they're you know they're a hundred and they're almost a hundred years old. They're like ninety five years old. So it's pretty great to come across works of art that are unique, that were relatively unknown, and here they are, fresh, fresh for everybody to take a look at. Yeah, sounds great. Well, aside from this coming auction and um, some of the other things at Christie's you have going on, what have you got going on outside of work? Hmm. Life outside of work. Is there such what a do, thing? What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, well, apart from, let's see. I know people ask me this question and I start stumbling because I, I get to go to museums and galleries and I love going to lectures. So all of that just feels like, it feels like life, yeah. not work. Yeah. So I just kind of do that stuff naturally. Um, but I like to, uh, I'm still an avid reader, and mm -hmm. I'm trying to find more time to write, honestly. Um, I'd like to get back to writing more about photography, not about specific works that are coming up in auctions, for instance, but, um, but I'd like to put my 
pen to paper again. And then, um, you know, I'm probably due for a vacation, so I'd like to find <laughs> a beach, basically. Where are you heading? I, I don't know. But it'll be warm, yeah. and uh, and there will be water. <laughs> yeah, if anybody's got any good ideas, let me know. Are you going to wait until the New York winter? Probably, yeah. To make that vacation even better? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Oh, what about um, making pictures? Is that something that you still do? Uh, you know, I ha not not with any regularity. I still still got my Hasselblad and my four or five in it the storage like unit. You're crazy busy, so that's yeah, um, that's not too surprising. No, and and uh, it's it's been some years now. Obviously, people don't know. You know, that's that's such a in a way, it's such a private um, endeavor. People don't know me as a photographer, which which is uh, is fine, but I do continue to, you know, my first self-identification was as an image maker. And I think that that experience of having um, for so long thought about making images and, and, and making them and thinking about how to, you know, produce a compelling object, because it's not just about taking an image, it's also about then what kind of print, what's your presentation and all of that, has so deeply affected how I approach what I do now and think about how I think about like the object quality of, of art objects. And, um, and I think it gives me a bit of a different or, or maybe a, a more trained eye when I'm looking at other people's work and, um, and getting excited about things that I think are important. Thanks, Darius. This conversation was recorded October 2nd, 2016 in New York City, New York. Our theme music is by Daniel Bachman. I'm on Instagram at Eric Marth. And for more information on the show or to listen to older episodes, log on to www.thehalftone.org. <laughs>